Lodge 49 is supposed to go away. But it can't. But it can't because there are things. There are bigger things. I'm talking about the spirit that binds this room and everybody in it together. Lodge 49 isn't going anywhere. No, 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 no. It can never go away because we are the heart of the beast. Hello and welcome to Pod 49, the Lodge 49 fan discussion show that celebrates, remembers, and keeps alive the great show Lodge 49, which you can still watch on Hulu or Amazon or check your localities. Uh, we are in the midst of our season one rewatch. Uh, and Jim, tell us the details on this episode. So, this is episode nine. The title is Apogee which means climax or culmination, or in astronomy, the moon's furthest point from the Earth. It was written by Peter Ako and directed by Michael Trim. Awesome. And this is another week where we had, actually, especially for this show, a relatively short list of needle drops. We only had two, uh, Salah Ragab and the Cairo Jazz Band doing uh, Egypt Strut, um, which is when Ernie is talking to Captain uh, about where to show up for the big uh, transaction and while Dud and Ernie are escaping Scott at the motel, we hear Roundhouse with their song, Alchemy is Good for You, Don't You Know It. And we'd like to welcome in our fifth chair today, our guest host, as we have guest hosts for every season one rewatch. We are honored, humbled, excited to talk to one Linda Eamond. Welcome to Pod 49. Thank you. I cannot tell you how happy I'm to be here. It's awesome to all of us involved in Lodge 49, and certainly me, that we have the coolest fans and really persistent fans and uh, people who have uh, kept it alive and who love it as much as we do. It means a lot to us. That, that's nice to hear. Um, thank you. That, we, we often talk to our guests about this, and, and what do you think, what is the mystical connection between the cast and crew, the show, the fans? I mean, obviously it's not, you know, a massive mega hit, but it has dedicated fans and just seems to have a slow and sort of slow cook, slow burn fandom that just seems to grow and grow over time. Do you, have you ever tried to put your finger on what it is? What's the magic? I know that when I first read it, I felt I was aware of how unusual it is, um, was. Um, I read a lot of scripts for different things, both in theater and, and film and television. And right away, I just said, oh, man, this was talking about stuff. If you know what I mean? You know, this wasn't just a show that was like a, this or a procedural or anything else. It was talking about stuff. And I remember talking to Jim and Peter about that. And I think that because in the midst of all of its wackiness and its occasional real seriousness and um, its comedy, of course, 
there are really big things that Jim is saying and that the writers got on board to say, and we were all fully on board to say them. And I think a lot of those things really resonate with people and continue to resonate. Yeah, it, it was, it really was kind of a magical thing to watch the show gain new audiences during, uh, during COVID, during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. You know, it, 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 it seemed to be on every single what you should binge to feel a little bit better about humanity list out there. And I think it, it, in some ways, you know, he was tapping into something that we needed a, a little bit more of a communal spirit before the world knew it. Yeah. yeah, I do think there are things that were prescient about what he's writing about. But the truth is also Jim is writing about was writing about issues that have always been here um, and had come to the fore. But certainly there have been waves of it through time. But he decided to tell a big story through a microcosm of Long Beach and these characters and uh, uh, and yeah, I think that then because it's sort of a timeless tale, the fact is when you have a time like what we just have gone through with a pandemic, it's timelessness in regard to that comes to light. But I think that if we jump 10 years ahead and there's something else going on in the world, let alone one year ahead, I have a feeling the show is going to speak to that too, because that's the nature of what he was doing. The, your, Connie, of course, your character, probably outside of maybe you and Champ, sort of had that almost sociological, political sociological view on the the world that you were in within the show. You had that kind of, well, you of course were a journalist, but you both had that sort of journalistic eye, that commentary eye. Did did Jim or Peter ever talk to you about that, about being a little bit of a mouthpiece for that viewpoint on the show or those observations? For one thing, um, I think uh, Connie's pretty smart and they wrote her that way. And because of her being a journalist, she has a bigger worldview. She's done a lot of research. She's seen a lot of life. They certainly wrote a part. And then I built on that with them of somebody who's lived about 10 lives already and, you know, has been in like too many bars with too many men and written too many shitty stories and then some good ones and whatever. Um, And I think also in Connie's case, the fact that, like, I love the fact in a fable-like way, which there are aspects of this show that are obviously very fable-like, that they wrote a character who was directly facing her mortality. And so the fact that she was facing that and that I knew that from day one um, makes her view on the world is just going to be a little different. Well, yeah, that's a great... A lot of- Go for it, Claire. Well, there's a lot of great stuff she said kind of um, about living in the present, as well. And I was thinking about that, how that kind of connects to um, sort of where everyone found themselves uh, during the pandemic, that you were just kind of forced to confront the present like every day. There is. Um, yeah. yeah. I think there's a cool thing. A cool thing about her, though, really is that her sense of that, they allowed for that to change and wanted that to change because mm-hmm. someone who has the history that she has and then she is wrestling with this health thing, somewhat mysterious health thing that she has. And what is that going to mean? And really, in the arc of the show, um, it goes somewhere. I mean, where we are in Apogee and then where it goes in season two is really different. And the things that she realizes, even in this episode, really shift her sense of what you're talking about, Claire, like of mm-hmm. her, her sense of her relationship to time and what and what that means. And then there's some of it, honestly, that got lost. I mean, as you guys probably know or others have said, as is often the case with any show, um, there's a lot that ends up on the floor. You try to cutting room floor. You try to not have too much of that. But in the first season with shows, you end up usually having more 
on the floor um, because you're overshooting and you don't quite yet know how you're going to time everything out. And I will say that in that first season, there, there was a lot of Connie that, that didn't show up. And so there were certain elements of the story and some of that dimension, I think, that wasn't there. They brought it more into season two then, and I think you really would have seen it in the much-desired season three and season four. But, um, but, uh, but yeah, there was, there was more there, and uh, I certainly wondered if the audience was really getting a, a grip on it, even by the end of season one. But I certainly felt that in season two, you started to get a sense of the arc and the arc of her journey was not just a you know swoop up it's kind of all over up and down especially in relation to time and if we we say this every week and but this is a spoiler heavy we're assuming people have watched yeah. all two seasons <laughs> this, is, this is for the deep nerds so any references to things that come later and all that don't fear and listeners if you haven't caught up you either know you're going to get spoiled or stop now so just want to make sure we have that out there. Yeah, we actually talked to Jennifer and Susan, the editing team for episode eight, and they actually were saying how it, you know how much actually in in episode eight, sorry, not season eight, episode eight, that there was actually a lot of Connie on on the cutting room floor, and and mm-hmm. how much Jennifer, who was an editor on that one, took really took a lot of thought and care about how to make the the scenes that stayed super poignant. They really had to sort of like do a lot of work in the scenes that made it into the show. Yeah, it was hard. You know, there were ones really from even the first episode of the show of um, when there was a flashback where you saw Connie meets, uh, um, you meet you meet Connie in a flashback. There was a whole scene, I don't know if you've heard about it, but that was shot in a Vegas hotel room with Scott. Oh. And uh, we shot it. Yeah, we shot it. And where you know, I've told him what's going on with me. And then he gets down on his knees and asks me to marry him. And, and then there was one of me really coming in the bar and really coming face to face with Ernie for the first time in the lodge, you know? And so there were really foundational things that had to go. And in the end, those guys are really smart and they knew what, what had to happen. But even in episode nine, there were bits and I was looking back and there were our bits and I still have uh, my notebook from the shows from the two seasons and stuff. And there, you know, and some of the stuff is really little and some of the stuff is interesting that they cut. And when you talk a little bit more about the episode, maybe I'll throw in something that was cut. That's kind of curious, you know, but yeah, it's always hard. It's hard. Like, because you've invested so much in it, but they're telling a big story and they, you know, they got to get all the little uh, pieces of thread in there to weave the tapestry. You know, I've built up so many uh, ideas in my head of uh, how did Scott and Connie meet and the difference between Scott and Ernie. And uh, so now I'm kind of uh, chomping at the bit. (laughs) Well, they did. They did sort of give it in the second season. I can't remember what episode Scott tells the story. And he yeah. tells, he might even tell to Ernie or something, but he tells the story. And I remember Eric and I being really pleased that at least that story got to be told in there. But, you know, sometimes that's better. Like sometimes waiting and and waiting a story and telling it later is is, is better for the show. Yeah. yeah. There's an episode in season two when Connie mentions having lived in Chicago. And I'm like, I want a whole show about Connie in Chicago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> know. Yeah, the cool thing, the cool thing really, which I just always loved and Jim and Peter and I talked about some of it. And then I, of course, just riffed on it. And Brent and I would talk about stuff. And Eric and I would talk about stuff. We all would. But the thing with Connie really is because, like I said earlier, I think Connie's had many, many lives. And so 
I I had fun going down those little paths because as an actor, that stuff is sometimes really useful to do that. So I could tell you stories, even if, <laughs> even if they're just ones I made up, you know. <laughs> Go ahead, Jim. Uh, I wanted to ask you about the physicality of playing Connie and especially the the blindfold is the first thing that comes to mind. But also one thing that uh, when we were rewatching, uh, it was a season, I mean, episode seven, I think, when you're chewing gum and you blow a bubble, I'm like, you know, that's something I never actually learned to do as a kid. And if I were an actor and I had to do that, I don't know what I would do. Um, I, I put that I no, I put that in actually. I went up to Jim oh, that great. day when we were out on the baseball field and I just went up to Jim and said, Jim, don't you think Connie should chew gum and blow bubbles? Like, don't you think so? And he was like, Yeah. So the props department got me some bubble gum. And then I started blowing the bubbles and they decided to put it in. Like they decided to get that real close-up shot. Yeah. And that was just from something on the day. A lot of that kind of stuff happens when you're working on a show. People come up with some idea. But, yeah, the bubblegum was mine, actually. In this episode, you got to play pinball, which we we talked about that machine, the Aztec, on an earlier episode. So I wanted to get your take on what, what it was like playing that, that game. Oh, it was, a bla- it was a blast. If anything, you may have heard that we had to get everybody away from it because the crew <laughs> and everybody and people in between things, you just wanted to play it because it was really fun. And um, every now and then... I have some memory. I could be wrong, but like of it breaking at one point because people were screwing around with it too much, so they had to they had to get them to to stop, you know. But you know, one thing that I really like and that I was proud of, really, was Carol and I both that we really came up with her look because you're talking about her physicality mm-hmm. too. And the original idea, honestly, was um, um, with all respect to Jim and Peter, that they had basically told Carol was, you know, slacks and a blouse. Like, she's just a writer, and she wears slacks and a blouse. And when Carol called me and we had our we first met over the phone, I was shooting something in Vancouver, and I remember vividly walking and, and saying, well, what are they saying? And she said that. And I said, oh, no, man, we can, we can definitely... Oops, sorry, sound on. Um, I said, uh, no, man, we can do better than that, for sure. And we spent that day and evening, I remember being in the hotel room I was in in Vancouver, and we were just throwing around ideas. And some of it came from that sense of, no, again, this is a woman who's lived this whole life. And as I said, in all these bars and all this life, and, da, da, da. and we started talking about influences and kind of rock and roll and, and women who are tough and are nobody's fool. And we started thinking of artists, though, because she has that element to her as a writer. And we started coming around to somebody like Bonnie Raitt. And then, you know, people like some singers in that, Cheryl Crow and some people like that. And suddenly we started to have images and she started sending me pictures and I sent her some stuff and we went back and forth. And ultimately, Carol and I had so much fun in all the episodes having a visual that we came to love and we're really happy that I wasn't just dressed in pants and, and a, and a blouse, you know, yeah. a lot of that stuff, I think, told stories and uh, gave her a kind of a color colorfulness you know just and when you just looked at her which which we we really enjoyed coming up with all that stuff that's funny i was going to ask you because i just i love the way carol dressed dress you and dress connie i think it it, it especially in, when everything has to be so economical right i mean this show was serving what sometimes 20 different 
character narratives. So everything had to be economical. And just every outfit that you wore as Connie, like, told a story in the second that you walk into a scene or that you pan through. I I found it remarkable. Yeah. Lucinda Williams was the one that always sparked in my brain in a similar. I think she came up. I think she came up too. She did. What's funny too, that I'll, I'll I'll quote Carol again, is that, um, or I'll quote, quote Carol is that, uh, when we started looking at season two and what was going to be happening in season two, we said, do we want to make any adjustments to it? And we did subtly or not in that we ultimately decided it was Carol's terminology. If, if in season one, she was kind of living in the land of, of, of Bonnie Raitt, in season two, because of the more kind of mystical things that happen and the draw that she has more toward her destiny, which is in a different way, we went more in the George Harrison route, the later George Harrison. And so that was some of our motivation with some of those things she'd wear, those roby things and I don't know, all kinds of stuff was actually a little bit of George Harrison. So. Love it. I love Very that. Very nice. My favorite Beatle. um all right so are we ready to jump into episode nine Uh, we generally start off with some some big themes or big takeaways for the episode so linda as our guest we'll we'll start off with you if that's okay what was your sort of big takeaway in your rewatch for some reason the one that caught me uh is because it was early in the episode and it's not really a big scene but it was in the donut shop and it was when bert walks in and uh, and Ernie, uh, Dad has just been on the phone to Ernie, and they have this whole sense of what they're going to do, and you know, with the captain, all that kind of stuff. And and Bert, you know, just says, "Your loan is up." You're, you know, whatever. And he says, in his very Bert way, deadpan way, not even looking at Dud, he says, "You're out of time." You know, one day we're going to look back on these tete-a-tetes, Bert. We're going to laugh. You know what laughter sounds like? If you let some of the gas out and you're rotting inside, it might sound like laughter. Hey, pretty soon, none of this is going to matter, okay? You're out of time. And um, those things show up a lot in the show. And uh, he lays those in, Jim does. And for me, it had impact partly because... I don't know if anybody's brought this up, but when we, you know, we don't know everything about the show. We didn't know every and everything about the show. Jim did. It was in his head. So there are certain things that we made up and everything else. But a couple of us, and me included, started to feel that maybe Bert was going to be actually, as the show went on, something really important because he's the money guy. And money drives, you know, the, the society. And that's a lot of what's in this, the people who have money, the people who don't. And he was such a deadpan, quiet guy, but had a lot of power with that shop. And we always wondered, like, is that shop a front for some? Are we going to end up finding out that Bert has some kind of power? And so for me, that's why, although it's, again, almost post-season two uh, response uh, versus all the way back at one, is that when he's just standing there and said, you're out of time, it really, uh, it really struck me in a way that it hadn't in the past. The only true capitalist on the whole show. well and he's so involved in like kind of this one particular like example of alchemy where he like basically makes dud's fake watch worth more money by like pretending Mm -hmm. that it is real gold and Mm -hmm. so he's like uh yeah he's kind of like an engine of capitalism and of alchemy and like uh stuff like that exactly exactly yeah that really started to strike us more and more as the cast as it went on you're like what's up with bert yeah, <laughs> yeah. And you so rarely game. see him. 
you so really rarely see him outside of the pawn shop too. So there was almost like out in the world, like it, it, every, everything he said in that little mini scene felt like it had import. I agree. Like it was just like, yeah. it was out of sorts in a, in a, an interesting way. Mm-hmm. Okay. What okay. are your guys? I want to hear. Yeah, let's go. Um, I, uh, I was struck by, uh, there was a line, um, also a minor line. It's just like in one of the Tom Stone audiobooks, And, um, he says something about fool's gold. And um, I thought that was really uh, probably foreshadowing like uh, that this deal is gonna fall through, that like there's no, um, like this is a false promise that the uh, that uh, captain is making them. And like, um, it's one of many sort of boondoggles they're gonna be sent on throughout the show that like are false starts and dead ends. and. Uh, and, you know, maybe, uh, you know, they could say that about um, capitalism as well, just generally, you know, just <laughs> maybe one could say that, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's uh, something that I latched on to there. Bart, did you have one? Uh, yeah, I mean, I have a couple, I think. Um, one line that kind of struck me this time around, I think, was uh, when um, Ernie and Dud are talking about uh, – being in love and Doug kind of realizes he never has been. And Ernie has this great line where he says, um, you know, it comes together like an or- orchestra warming up and then the music just starts playing, you know? And I'm uh, in last year, I was a little bit hesitant to bring this kind of stuff up because I thought it might be a little too hoity toity and I am certainly no expert on it, but I did read Ulysses and Jim did, just repost an article that he wrote about Ulysses and about how it so much of it is about being broke. Um, but I needed the like cliff notes to understand most of it. And there's a certain <laughs> chapter where it's, uh, you know, cause all the chapters have this different like perspective that they go with that, that he goes with. And there's one where it's like a lot of just, uh, you know, say, people saying things that aren't really finished. And it's almost like this, uh, way of, uh, you know, free-form thought that's kind of coming out. And that's how the chapter begins. And in the Cliff's Notes, they reference it as, like, this is sort of like an orchestra uh, warming up. And that's what, like, sort of Joyce's position on it was. And so, uh, and that always struck me because I thought that was, like, a great way of putting it. And um, so this time around, I really kind of latched on to that because of that thought that I had about how, perfectly they wrapped up what that what he was doing in that chapter and so i don't know i think there's a big connection between ulysses and and uh lodge 49 in the best ways in my opinion jim my big takeaway was blammo (laughs) (laughs) that's pretty much what i got i have i have a bunch of small moments and i have Mm -hmm. uh some quotes and whatnot but i had a hard time settling on on a on a theme I felt like I, I was, I, I rewatched it twice actually, because I was kind of like, I need to nail down what actually happens in this one. It was, it's so all over the place for me. It's what such a pre- penultimate episode, you know, like, yeah. so it leads yeah. and it's great in its own way, but the finale is also so great. So like, but there's a lot of great setup in it. Yeah. The big takeaway for me was that I just was struck by this idea of passages and passageways you know, all the characters seem on the move. 
you know, they're not going to all necessarily end up where they're going to end up or should end up or think they're going to end up, but everyone's moving somewhere. Um, there's a lot, it's a very action packed episode. Decisions are being made, choices moving around sort of, you know, especially in a show where at times you, it's okay to sit in the quieter, more contemplative moments, right? It's one of the things the show does so amazingly well is, is follow the pace of life. But this one had a certain agitated energy up and it was just, you, you get the sense of everyone moving somewhere else. And then there's a couple, mm-hmm. you know, there's a couple lines. Uh, and then of course stuff in season two where these kind of passageways and hidden tunnels and stuff. But it, it was Ernie who says it, one 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 point, you know, we're mole rats, baby. Um, <laughs> you know, so like, you know, they're all like burrowing, they're all tunneling, they're all like moving, you know, creating this almost like network of activity. Um, and that's what Bart, I, I love that line that Ernie as well, but that also reminds me, like it is that, it's that cacophony of energy that eventually will turn into a song. But here it just kind of, it does kind of sometimes come off as discordant energy of people being on their their paths. Yeah. All right. Those are some good themes. Good work, everyone. <laughs> good job, um, everybody. You get everyone can pick you can pick at home which one you like best and make up your make up your own. Um all right, so Jim, you're gonna lead us into some small moments since uh, you said that's where you spent your energy. So what were some of the small moments or little lines or little things that you loved? Okay, so my favorite I think was when we see Scott through the peephole at the motel and he thinks yes. he's talking to Connie. and it's just dud standing there and then once he i'm just having that view on him while he's giving this this speech is funny and then he once he realizes it's dud there he puts his eye up and tries to see back through which uh was a nice comic moment um i also loved when ernie sees connie going into the lodge and he starts to get out of the car he's going to follow her in and then he gets pulled back in by the L. Marvin Metz uh, audiobook. And, and <laughs> yeah. what is Tom Stone doing? He's going to Bravlov or something. <laughs> and uh, and another thing about that, I I love how Tom Stone's always talking about microfiche. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the only experience I have with microfiche in my life is when I was a little kid and we went to the library. But it's very important in Tom Stone's world. Like all the secrets are on it. Yeah. Um, I feel like in all Cold War sort of like spy dramas, microfiche is really important (laughs) i feel like it comes up in the americans a lot (laughs) hide it transport it whatnot yeah um and then just the other thing i wanted to mention was you know we've talked a lot in these recaps about kind of mysteries being wrapped up or things being revisited or being explained an episode or two later and here we get the the geologist. Remember, he was at Shamrocks mm-hmm. a couple episodes back. I'm having these personal issues, and he might goes there to think. I forgot <laughs> and, uh, he was at Shamrocks. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, Liz was like, "You come here to think? What do you think?" <laughs> um, and now we find out what happened. You know, he lost his job. Well, I was teaching rocks for jocks out at Long Beach State, but I got greedy and took on this groundwater class out of Pomona. Like three kids registered and it was a really long drive so I didn't think twice about not showing up until the dickhead section leader ratted me out I lost both jobs and my crustal deformation seminar then my apartment then my girlfriend it was Jenga man just tell us about the Kaplan architects and he's you know kind of putting Dud and Ernie to sleep with this whole story of, of what's been going on in his life 
um, after they hit him with the car. <laughs> so it probably uh, won't my... sue you. That's a great line. Yeah, won't sue yeah. you. Yeah. Right. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> Just for a ride, he gets they get off pretty cheap. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it's true. Um, Linda, did you have any small? things that you you noticed for the first time or maybe on rewatch or that sort of sparked you as interesting? I just loved, um, I loved the refrigerator being out in the water. Yeah. And I do hope, of course, that people make that connection to the trebuchet and Orbis, you know, throwing it out. There's one, a little tiny thing that one of the things that was cut in that episode, which was a reference to it is that I had a little scene with Gil at the, at the band party, the party with the band and I mentioned something about that, you know, shooting anything off or whatever, which laid it in. But I, I always love that, that, that I remember reading that. And I love that. I loved the, um, um, I really loved how sweet the Emily Dud stuff was, is, uh, you know, the librarian. And of course that she's a librarian. And of course I always felt that we were going to meet Emily again, somewhere yes. down the line. I think there's a, a sense of destiny of some kind about that. I love that. And then, of course, again, as I was watching, I'm reminded of things that weren't there, like the parabola, the, the, the thing with Gil. There also was actually a little scene where a couple of the Orbis people are sitting in the tavern, and I went over because I had found it in another episode, and I show them a picture from Orbis of, uh, of guys, and if you look really close, they've got the parabola. Um, and I say, so, you know, they really were here. This really was a thing. Like, it's not just a made-up thing. And I give them the picture even because I feel like it's part of their history that was there. And then just a really weird one to mention that was not there is um, that it's not completely clear, I realize, on reviewing it. But, you know, what what happens to Connie at the end of that episode, because talking about what you said, Claire, like there's more and more destabilization, really. And Chris, you were saying that, too, like everybody's a little bit all over. And I think that's because it's heading toward the end of the season in, in the 10th episode but um connie losing her way and all that between the two guys and then ending up at the lodge and um and then she played pinball you see her kind of wandering and then she the last thing you see of her is she goes and she's looking at the picture on the wall the painting on the wall of the lodge and what they don't don't i don't know that they make it clear enough but the, the intention was that she begins to see an aura, and so she's going to have another one of her seizures. Uh. And she does, actually, in the script originally written. And she wakes up, Blaze finds her in the library, and she has stumbled up there to get away. And I think there even was an end after I looked at the painting and kind of went, uh-oh, oh no, oh no, because I know I'm going to have one of those things. I start to see the weird stuff. And... Um, I and go somewhere where I know I can have a sort of a fit, like I did way early in the episode in the car. If you might remember that, I get yeah. in the car and I have one. Um, and there was a tiny scene that was cut. There was just a weird little scene in which Blaze finds me, and I say I must have fainted, which of course is a lie. I know I had an attack of some kind, and then I say something like, "You smell cigar smoke." Oh. Um, yeah. And so that's one of those like weird little tidbits of things that, although there are many in the show and that made it into the show and that lasted through the show, there are little references to like, what was she smelling? And is she smelling through time? Is she smelling back to yeah. the 
guys from the past. Mm -hmm. And ultimately there's always been a bit of Connie and that becomes more in season two. And I think was really going to be there and more in three and four of her being a seer of kinds. Jim always felt that about her, but she doesn't quite know it. It takes her time to know it. And at this point in it, she doesn't yet know it. So that's my answer. My answer was partly the things that I saw and actually some things that I didn't see, which is actually in keeping with the nature of the show, isn't it? So yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. unseen. Yeah, smelling through time is so interesting. Like, well, because we, we never really knew. Like, we never completely. Like, yeah, we never completely yeah. knew what it was. You just kind of do it and you figure. Yeah. But we always knew that there was some relation to the sense of the library and and or are there other people in here? Are there secret people in here? Or is there going to somebody who's going to come out of the wall somewhere? You know. But um, but yeah, that Connie had woken up and smelled cigar smoke. Ultimately, for reasons of well, whatever, that didn't make it in. But yeah, I felt it when I was watching the show. I remembered that moment and shooting. I have a question. Love- I'm kind of uh, I'm not even sure I want to know the answer. But did, <laughs> did did you and Jim discuss what the actual disease was, or did you keep it like just sort of? Open? I know. Yeah, we did from the very beginning, and um, uh, you know uh, there they never had a desire because it's not any kind of a, you know, to have it be specific and have it be a medical thing. And that of course, specifically, and that of course would have taken away from the show, I think, you know, Um, the fact that it was a, a a brain related issue that it did cause seizures and that um, they didn't quite know. And that what they knew though, was that it wasn't going to get better. They knew that. I was told early on because I was told you're playing a character who actually has this series and this, this serious condition and it's, it's mortal, you know, I mean, it's fatal. And, um, but they did tell me, but that doesn't mean you're going to leave the show. Just know that. Mm-hmm. So I didn't know that much, but, um, so that's really about as far I mean, we talked about it a couple of times, but within that realm, because the focus really was from that, my word, but fable like way to have somebody who, who thinks, you know, she's she's gonna die it also left us open for which i think some of that gets talked about in season two a little bit about um you know maybe it doesn't end up being as bad as the doctors first thought maybe there is some way through it so again you get the idea yeah so we we talked about it in the general sense in that way yeah i definitely feel like in season two it regressed or wasn't as bad but then also especially thinking about fables and thinking about these rewatches and all the mysticism i mean the idea that uh especially uh female seers oracles often had spells often had seizures that was a pretty big you know kind of trope in medieval mysticism and whatnot so i think even by season two you really feel like it's a a gift not a curse Mm. i I, totally and i think that that is what draws her. I mean, I think that when you find her at the top of episode 10 in London, um, she's pretty happy. You know, there's stuff that's happened. And, uh, you know, for one thing, which they always were a little dodgy about in the writing of it, but was absolutely meant to be the truth. I, big spoiler people, um, for people listening, you know, Connie becomes a member of the True Lodge and she doesn't tell any of them when she comes back and never tells them in season two. And that would have been something that probably would have come out later. But of all people, the most unexpected, which I remember Jim and Peter talking to me about before season two, that of all the people, because she's jaded and she's seen everything and she just kind of happened into it because of the guys, but she's being pulled into it. 
And that is part of that thing of what's pulling her and what is her destiny and is her destiny her work? Is her destiny uh, Scott, this good guy? Is her destiny Ernie, this deep love? Or is her destiny possibly weirdly, well, it has something to do with Liz, I think. We saw at the end of season two, big spoilers. Um, but also, is her destiny maybe really have to do with Lodge 49, you know, the Lodge? Yeah. And how unexpected is that? But so, uh, yeah, I think, Chris, those things you're talking about, about they layered in all those things. Do you have all those possibilities of someone who has those kind of cracks in her psyche that open her up to the possibility of being a, a seer of sorts? Yeah, I remember when you uh, fall into the grave and you kind of feel comfortable there, that uh, scene always stuck with me. <clears throat> and, you know, like you'll hear stories about people like microdosing uh, mushrooms or something who are... Uh, uh, you know, sort of with a terminal in illness. And um, I, I have a lot of admiration for that because that's like the, the like worst thing I can imagine, you know. Uh, I, I Apparently it works, I'm not sure how, but, um, but that, <laughs> this idea just sort of being, like knowing that it's actually coming, it's hard enough for me when I don't know it's coming, but to know that it's coming and sort of find some peace, peace with that is uh, pretty admirable, and I, I thought yeah, that, that that goes that goes back to the stuff I was saying earlier, and it's all part of the show, and so it's all cool and it's all laid in. But I did have some of the stuff that that left in 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 season one, you know, had me worry. It, is that through line for Connie going to be there for because to me that beautiful you know seer aspect or that trajectory, and it, by the end of season two, I felt they had completely done that and solved that and laid it in. But early on, I don't know if as an audience, people necessarily would have gotten it enough or as much to hook into a little bit of, oh, what's going on with her? You know, what is happening there? What's going on with her? But by the end of season two, and very excited had we had a three and four, um, I, but by the end of season two, I think they had made it, you know, very, very clear what was going on with her and how it relates, like you said, to those issues of what do you do really if you think you're going to die, frankly? You know, what do you do? How do you live your life? Just go ahead and take the full dose, is my advice. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no what a horrible trip. What a horrible trip. <laughs> I, I just, it's hard to imagine. Um, uh, yeah, I, one thing I love about episode 10 is, I think in some ways, it, you know, and this was, it goes back to the first, my first viewing of it, you know, I, I think as it was airing in season one, um, it was such a powerful payoff when you say, you know, kind of screw these two, you know, goombas, I'm heading on a quest, you know, like you had the sort of noble egg, sort of the noble exit on season one, which even at the time I was like, oh, it was like, oh, oh okay. Like it was like a path opening there uh, that was both a good cliffhanger and just a like, it, it made your character arc lock in and that just those couple minutes where you sort of announce your intentions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's kind of, I just think it's unexpected. So it was so great that it was unexpected. She's like, where? Where is yeah. she? <laughs> and she seems, for the first time, really the happiest you've seen her in the whole, the most peaceful in a way. She's sitting in that, you know, tavern in, in, in Lodge One. Uh, Claire, uh, did you have any small moments? Oh, yeah, I got one. Um, so uh, when Jocelyn comes up to Blaze in the parking lot, uh, Jocelyn talks uh, they're talking about some thing that said that Harwood Fritz Merrill actually came across North America and um Blaze said that in that tract it uh 
it's said that he was doing it because he was evading a one-eyed man who was following him. And that just took me to the auction in the second season where there's like a one-eyed man at the auction. And I don't know if that was like supposed to be a tie-in. Um, other little moments, um, you know, I'm just psyched to see Tarquin. Like, always just psyched to see Tarquin <laughs> hanging out. <laughs> we don't get to talk about how good his physical comedy was. Like, there's one scene where, like, he kind of bends over so someone can sign on his back. I just just psyched to see him living his life, you know. All those guys really, by the way, and not by the way, a big thing for me in watching the show again is that I, I I love all those people so much. And like, I didn't work with those people, but we were, I was around those people right. on the set and off the set. So you really got to know them all. And I miss them all so much. And that included our regular lodge people, you know, Big Ben and, and uh, uh, you know, that whole crew, but also at the band night, it was so great to see all those people. As you guys know, most of those people who played the lodge members who were extras, basically, they were regular extras. So we saw them all the yeah. time and uh, and got to know them, you know. And so at like seeing the show again today, just seeing the family of them, but to a person, I mean, Ollie, they, they were so great. And often Jim, those guys would really find what somebody was really, I definitely felt that as it went on very quickly that Jim was writing for, for Tarquin, you know what I mean? That he was writing for, uh, right. for the actor playing, you know what I mean? That he's like, yeah. for, that it's like, you know what I mean? That he, he starts to feel where all that stuff sits. And I think that was true for, for a lot of, uh, a lot of the characters. Yeah. His, his stop and pop game was in, uh, was I mean, in high effect in this know, episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I like this line about Janet told me that she's gonna reach right into your tinder boxes and feel around <laughs> yeah he really put some mustard on that line yeah, like, he, he is, like, he is letting it linger like, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I was gonna mention I rewatched episode 10 also after this and I know we're not gonna talk about that yet but just one thing from there I wanted to bring up because it relates to Connie and it she's when you know she's talking to Ernie saying I'm in London I'm okay and then says Scott looked at her one way and Ernie looked at her a very different way and she wanted both and needed both of those things mm -hmm. um and there's a part in this episode nine when Ernie and Connie are standing together and he just looks at her and reaches out his hand, and then she breaks down. And that made me think of that, like, oh, this is the way that Ernie looks at her, you know, that she talks about later. Yeah, I think I think for me, the way that it was written was always a feeling of that her connection to Ernie is a kind of a soul connection, you know, that defies stuff. So when they had broken, I mean, I think that's why she thinks she can live without that and needs to and wants to. And then when he approaches her, wants to talk to her at the band thing and comes up and just even touches her face, you know, it's such a relief that there's going to be a connection again because she feels she needs him on some level or responds to him on some level. And I think she loves the heck out of Scott. I mean, Eric and I were really clear from the very beginning that we wanted to make sure, not that Jim wrote it that way, but we wanted to make sure that it was a real marriage and there was a lot of love there and they had great fun. I mean, you know, Connie and Scott, I think, have a good time, you know, they have a good time in their way. Um, and they're just different things. And so, yeah, so for her to say that about them, you know, what they mean and what they meant to her, the question just becomes as the show goes on, um, uh, 
will that the journey with those guys and what they mean in her life mean as much as a larger journey? Uh, because, you know, Jim, Jim said something like to me when we were talking before, um, uh, I think it was before season two. And he said something like she really, or was with, maybe it was with Jim and, and Peter. And he said, she needs something to affect in the world. I'm looking at my notes. The journalistic quest, right, as a journalist, may adjust moving forward. She's got to find her purpose. So the things that drove her as a writer, as a journalist, um, are going to find a, a new shape as she goes forward. And um, so in that scene at the top of 10, I think, and that she starts to see in the in, in nine even is is how does this fit into something else that's drawing me um, that I can see and start to see that there's as we were talking about some kind of crack in her psyche. All of those themes and all of those things. Uh, uh, by the way, you know we keep talking about Connie because I'm here as Connie, yeah. but uh, obviously the reality is is that every character in the show down to you know more supporting characters and everything have versions of this same thing and that's what's great this is connie's particular thing but you could take a lot of the things that i'm saying and there are ways in which that draw what's the journey what's the destiny how does it fit in also how do i just pay my rent you know what do i do i mean one of my favorite things in the show is in season 2 that i end up at temp joy yeah because, I love that you know scene. You know, because I spent all my, as Jim said, you spent all your money in London. Whatever money you had saved, you spent it in London when you took off for London. So the realities are there. But anyway, all the characters in the show, I'm just, we're just talking about me because I'm here. But the the liminal space is that is uh, temp joy for most characters yeah. as they pass between worlds. <laughs> exactly. I loved that stuff so much. I love those scenes so much. My, I had one small moment I have to throw out before we move on. And is that is, and when Scott and Ernie have the kind of catch up on the bargain, you know, like where Scott's like, we're still good, all that. And, and, you know, th th this is a, you know, which later blows up in everyone's face. It's a very heady stuff. Plus what they're talking about you, like a possession. It's like all very strange. It's good, you know, make come from a good place, but you know, a lot of wrong actions and tensions and, you know, stealing of agency of other people and blah, blah, blah. But like, just to cap that off, if you couldn't get that from the, 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 the text and the subtext when Scott goes to fist bump over the agreement with Ernie, that is the most hysterical moment. It's like, <laughs> you know, like the most dude bro thing, you know, even though they're you know, trying to wrestle with these like pretty complex emotions and whatnot, <laughs> but like, let's pound it out here to make sure that, you know, it's like, <laughs> it's yeah. like such that's a, a weird dude. Yeah, and Ernie doesn't quite know what to do, but he also is a dude enough to know how to respond after like a second of hesitancy. <laughs> it's such an awkwardly wonderful scene. And also touches on how human and, you know, Scott's arc is one of the most heartbreaking arcs of the two seasons in lots of ways. And, and that was just such a little, again, economical moment of that. I love the way he looked when he comes out of the bathroom and he like looks over his shoulder real quick. And it's like, he's, he's very serious and he's about to say something. So there's this, this this way that he shoots this look like as if he's giving away like secret information, but it because he's going to keep it low. But there, that look he does is very. There's a lot of great physical, comedic, acting going on in the show, and that was one for for Eric. Let's say um, at that moment, I really I love that talk that they have is uncomfortable and weird and the fist everything that is about it. But there's something about the way he looks over his shoulder. <laughs> 
And, I love uh, those guys so much. I love I love both of those guys so much, as you can imagine. I mean, they're just the greatest, and I love them both. And they are two remarkably different human beings, also on just a personal level. And um, and I I love them both for those different things. And I agree. I think that like Eric was so great as Scott, and uh, and a lot of those things that he found, and a lot of that humor that he had, and that big huge heart of his, and the big huge ego he had, and all that kind of stuff was so great. And Brent, of course, his his searching and his his heart and its soul and his all of his rhythms are so specific and cool. His physicality is really cool. So I loved working with them every day. Yeah, he's amazing. They're both amazing. Um, let's jump. Oh, I have to say, Linda, because you pointed it out, so I'm not going to steal your thunder too much. But there was real sexual chemistry between Dud and what I can't even. What was her name? The librarian, Emily. 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 Yeah, I just have to. That was the, that was his. Uh, that was some charged scenes there, and I love that she, her dad was an Orbis employee, mm-hmm. and that's yeah. just like such a little mini mystery right there. You know what? Who was he? Was he in the parabola group? A lot of like yeah, and weren't those things. and weren't those guys like she's so great? She's not in the show very much at all, obviously, and yet she makes such an impact and is so great. And the stuff that, of course, Wyatt and Wyatt's so great, but the amount of detail that Wyatt has in those scenes that look back and forward, and the two of them, I just thought those scenes are are gold, little 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 gold nuggets. They are great. All right, so we're jumping into our secrets of the scrolls. This is where we. We divine for uh, little clues, things that are going to come. We probably touched on a few already. And what this has sort of turned into, as we've delved into our third and fourth and sometimes fifth rewatch of these episodes, is how much uh, Jim and the cast and crew weave in tarot imagery. So we'll, we'll highlight a couple things here. Um, one, we, as we, everyone knows, I think, that this is the water episode of the four elements. Or, wa- sorry, water season. Um, and so this being the ninth episode, the, the nine of cups is actually pretty relevant. So what's really kind of interesting about the nine of cups is it's generally a very positive card. It's usually about celebrating accomplishments. It's about um, completing stuff. It's about payoffs and uh, celebration, celebrating material, friendship, so on and so forth. And so that's a little hard to apply to this one just because, of, you know, we know that there's a little bit of a uh, Lucy in the football element to some of the good news that's about to co- that we think or the characters think is coming. But what I thought was the real nine of cups moment in this episode was um, the Don Fab Lodge party scene. I mean, that be- be- between Dud's speech and them all kind of coming to terms with the end of the lodge, but also celebrating its spirit it being full for the first time, there really is a kind of a celebration and sort of like, this is something that we build. And if it lasts tomorrow or it lasts another year, we have tonight. So there was a kind of, to me, a nine of cups moment of that kind of emotional overflow um, of, of the party itself, um, which is a great scene. And then of course, Connie, maybe you could, Connie, Linda, you could speak to this a little bit. Uh, And Jim, I have to say his Eagle eye pointed this out. There is a pretty good approximation in the stained glass of the temperance card over your right shoulder in one of the bar sequences. So um, there's a bit of a temperance element here, which is, of course, the major arcana. And in the temperance archetypes, greatest long-term success is realized via ultra-talent, easygoing, open-minded, lenient, patient, accepting, controlled, ordered, adjusted, regulated, and balanced, careful, and calm. 
Nothing can rattle or shake this archetype. They retain their composure and produce a measured response to any drama or crisis, no matter how distressing the situation is or how heightened the emotions of our other of others. And so, you know, it seemed like, you know, your character was really, you know, and throughout the course of the show, really broadcast temperance in that in that way that we've talked about in this episode already. So did you know you had the temperance card over your shoulder? Nope. <laughs> no, I'd have to go back and take a peek out of it. Nope. Um, Jim, uh, Jim can send you. He he got a screenshot. Jim can send you a screenshot. Okay, cool. Um, Jim, how did you? Did you? Were you just training your eye now to look for these? Yeah, I got to contribute to Chris's tarot corner. You know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I I just happened to notice. Well, I was rewatching that scene to get make sure I, I remember what Connie said and Jocelyn, because you're asking him about well, what is London like? You know, mm -hmm. he's telling you about uh, his history, it's so stuffy, and then Blaze gets all mad. You're like a wizard of demystification. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so your part was, oh, you can probably hear yourself think, and then he says, yeah, it's awful. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and so during that part, it just struck me because it's this figure that has kind of red either wings or some kind of cape. And then I was like, oh, there's a tarot. It's gotta be a tarot. And it's, and whether it's a male or, or female, I, you can't really tell, but they're pouring uh, one chalice into another. So I Googled that part of it and then came up with that it was this temperance card. I just, yeah, Chris has conditioned me to think everything and anything and everything is tarot, but also, but all those, this stained glass in the lodge we've, identified several other ones um, yeah, the, by now. The, wing, yeah. the wings and the picture are definitely the, the giveaways on that. Yeah. Anybody else have little uh, secrets of the scrolls, little embedded mysteries they picked apart from this episode? Um, I, I wanted to relate back to uh, something you were talking about, uh, tunneling and traversing and everything. Um, Connie at one point says to Ernie, it's like we dug a tunnel back to high school. And... Um, I feel like that might be foreshadowing, like, also the discovery of the tunnels later. Uh, um, and uh, we have a lot of hollow earth sort of imagery with, like, literally the Omni suit and, like, Janet's inside it. Uh, yeah, and um, just uh, there, there's also between Emily and Dud, that's, like, a very sweet moment. But what they're talking about is pretty, um, pretty intense. They're, like... Um, have you ever looked at your face in the mirror until it doesn't look like anything or like yeah. saying a word over and over again until it doesn't even signify the thing underneath it. And like, you know, this is a show that seems to be about, um, you know, like uh, the appearance of things either being more than what they contain or less than what they contain. And so, uh, yeah, I've just been thinking on that sort of theme vibe. I love tunnels. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mark? Um, well, I was going to say something. Well, there was, speaking of the tarot cards or whatever, um, Dud mentions that Gil is the astronomer. And um, so I looked up the astronomer, I found the star card, which is a beautiful card with deep and powerful with a deep and powerful message, especially for those going through a rebirth. 
invites the reader to shed their skin and be naked under the beauty of the starry night sky. Um, I don't know. I thought that had a lot to do with how Gil is sort of, you know, the way he, when Connie's interviewing him and he, instead of thinking about how he's been fired, he just thinks of it as like, he's got a, he's had a nice run. You know, I worked there where he says like 15 years or 20 years, and now I'm going to do something else. You know, my nephew had a job, but it only lasted two years. He kind of makes this sort of comparison about like, ultimately, if you look at the big picture, I mean, it's, it's really just like a super positive look on getting canned. Um, but I, it, he does sort of feel like there, like Gil has these really big moments, even though he's sort of a, a bit of a minor character and to some degree, but he has these like big moments. Like for me, when he's singing, um, fortunate son, uh, you can really get a sense of like, kind of what he's actually kind of gone through having thought that this was going to be something he could retire with or work his whole life at and it being like kind of stripped away from him. And, um, and of course, also uh, the uh, refrigerator that Liz um, latches onto is obviously what they hurtled out into uh, the ocean. Um, but the first thing I thought when I saw it was icebox, because my grandmother used to say icebox. And you know, mm -hmm. back in those days when you you could literally like uh, you know the you can tell by the clamp on the door that it's one of those old uh, refrigerators that they don't make anymore. You know, every refrigerator you could just push open because children used to cl climb in and get stuck in there. And so I felt like when I saw that clamp on it, it just kind of brought up icebox to me. And I was kind of thinking about how that's a little, it's kind of different than a refrigerator, at least by term, and how that kind of brings into uh, play the whole water, ice, and how Liz is a little bit more ice. If the if the Dudleys are a water family, Liz is certainly like the ice side of it, I think. Um, anyway, yeah, those little details. Yeah, and she, she has a, yeah, because she goes in the fridge earlier in season one, the fridge... Yeah, saves her here, and then oh. she obviously goes into the kind of Aurora Borealis freezer in season right. two. Yeah, so she the, those uh, are those are doorways for her, and the the cooler at higher states too. Oh, that's right. Yes, yes. good one. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's where she goes. That's a portal. That's a, definitely a portal for Liz. Great one. Great. So one similar theme. My one thing for I don't know that it's a secret or a scroll, but. Um, <laughs> it's uh just the night swimming theme that comes out in season two that Lenore tells Liz, you know, Bill told me your mom enjoyed night swimming. She would go out there at night and, and he was always scared for her. And 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 then of course at the end in the final episode, we have the beautiful scene of Liz and Dud night swimming. Um, but I felt like her jumping off the boat and swimming back to shore. She hasn't even heard that. She doesn't know that yet. That it's sort of a, you know, um, foreshadowing again, or yeah, calls, calls forward to that theme. What's that thing called um, where like you're on the ledge of something and you feel compelled to like jump off of it, like the call of the abyss or like the call of the void or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, I think there could also be a reading about that here because people keep saying Liz has a death wish, which is probably too simplistic. Maybe she just also has some preternatural compulsion, like, um, you know, towards her mother or like can, she has some connection towards her mother that like can't really uh, be put into words or anything. 
Yeah. I love uh, uh, so much listening to you guys and listening to um, you make these connections. And of course, um, some of them are new to me. Most are not necessarily from being a part of it, but uh, they're uh, continue to be a fascination for me. It were throughout the process and continue to be, uh, I would have given anything to be inside Jim's brain or inside his notebooks or no, because it constantly, that stuff that you talk about that you go, Oh wait, but then that happened later. And like the fact that Emily's father was in Orbis or something. And I know that most of those, it always felt to me, Jim had in that big brain of his and big heart of his, and that he had this, you know, thing he knew he saw and, uh, so I love that even if we didn't get to finish the tale, that there's so much of it that is out there and that you guys are really getting and hearing and enjoying all those connections. So let's, oh, by the way, and just, yeah, sorry, go ahead, Chris. No, go ahead, go ahead. No, and the last thing is just that in the realm of things, it doesn't have to do with tarot card or something, although I'm sure we could find it, but clearly there's stuff this episode, given all that, um, as you say, the water imagery is great, and, of course, there's a narwhal that does... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, play very, very, uh, very, and in the whole season, it does the narwhal a number of times. Um, I don't know if you guys know, do you guys know the secret that when in the optometrist's office, when Connie has her eyes checked, that I spell out mm -hmm. narwhal, right? You guys probably saw that. And, um, but, uh, so it's in there a lot, but, um, but this, this episode to talk about like things that you saw and see that that notion of piercings uh the harpoon obviously the him being literally pierced in the eye and of course mm -hmm. the imagery of that but um and i don't know how that plays into things in tarot cards and other but i wonder in terms of the idea of people who see or don't see or can't see or their sight is damaged or all of those things that seem to me showed up in this episode and again really throughout a lot of the show but certainly in this episode well you know I was going to say, you know, picked up on that, on you spelling out Narwhal uh, in episode six was Karen Mantella, who was our guest co-host for that one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 I hadn't, I don't think any of us had I knew someone that. did. I we couldn't did. remember yeah. who. Yeah. Yeah. Also, I just realized, um, so Captain basically becomes a unicorn through um, a very violent process. Uh, or a narwhal, like, and, or a narwhal. Yeah, or narwhal. Or a narwhal. And um, mm -hmm. I remembered Ernie like saying in an earlier episode, people go searching for unicorns, but screw unicorns, man. And then he accidentally kind of stumbles upon a very literal, very visceral sort of like version of yeah. one. Well, yeah. yeah. Ernie has a strange relationship with all imagined and real horned beasts. Cause he says mm -hmm. that about, and he says that about the rhino, why we need unicorns when we have rhinos. Then we have the whole narwhal. And then you've got the um, donkey corn. You know, he sees the donkey corn. Yeah. So there's some, you know, mm -hmm. I, 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 I will fully admit I have not figured anything out about that except to, to note that Ernie's relationship with horned beasts uh, is runs throughout <laughs> both seasons. Well, you know, also, um, I, I think I made a really terrible prediction that we would see we would we would see Captain return in season two. This was on the verge of it when we were doing our predictions. And I kind of realized when I was watching it this time around how much um, how clear it is that his story is finished because he's he has his he has Brenda back. You know, it's like you kind of realize that like what his Duende was just sort of like, you know, what he had before he went 
too far off, you know. So he he if he could return to just having the life with his wife, it would be all that he needed to get his duende back. And in fact, his you know he gets blinded, which leads to his uh, understanding very much like how Connie uh, luckily doesn't have to get poked by a narwhal's horn, but she puts on the blindfold the same way. You know, there's there's this idea that you know you have to like turn off the lights in order to see. And, uh, and seen I, I just, an unseen man, seen an unseen man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. All right. Well, I think we've come to that time that everyone gets excited for. Everyone has their own picks. It is, of course, Alchemist of the Week, where we look at each of our takes on who sparked, facilitated, inspired an alchemical reaction in a character or plot or something in the show. Uh, Linda, we won't put you right on the spot. That's not always fair to the guests. So uh, let me, Bart, why don't you lead us off with your Alchemist of the Week? Okay, sure. Um, I was considering uh, Dud in a sense because I felt like it was his horrible advice to Ernie to admit to Connie that he knew that Scott knew. Um, but instead of that, I'm just going to go ahead and give it all to Scott, who was the one who hatched up the whole plan. Because um, as well-intentioned as he is, it is a horrible idea I mean, I think it's kind of big of him to sort of be able to admit to Ernie that he knows. But then when he kind of goes a little bit too far to be like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna be working all day, spend the day with her all day tomorrow. That's when it kind of gets a little bit creepy. And anyway, of course, it's gonna fall apart, but it is also what leads to Connie then having to make the decision like, you know what? I need a break, I need to get out of here. She goes to London and she comes back a new person. So I think even in, you know, to me, I like to see the larger picture. Uh, so sometimes your alchemical uh, equation can be a mess and turn something from gold into lead the other way around. But in the larger picture, obviously I think it leads to um, a Connie who comes back refreshed, uh, you know, in some way accepting her own mortality and a clearer picture about where she stands with the two men in her life. So I'm gonna go with Scott. I just have to say, going from season one to season two, I'm so happy. I think it was the penultimate episode of season two, although I could be wrong. I'm very much trying to live in the episodes that we're doing now. But that, you know, we had this hysterical chase scene at the motel. And then in season two, they're all in the same chase scene when they're running away with the scrolls. You know, we have this kind of, you know, conflict to community uh, in these two like wacky, awesome uh, sort of uh, action sequences. So I love that one. Who's Linda, do you want to take us next to give us your alchemist? Yeah, I, I just took alchemist in the sense of transformation. And I loved the spirit of Jocelyn in this thing in the in the in this episode and in his struggles as we were talking about everybody does and where are they going what are they doing in his um where do we belong what is our destiny what do we have faith in what do we not have faith in and I really loved that uh, the scene with Blaze in which he was just honest about that he really is in a sense a uh, a non-believer uh who nonetheless sees beyond even his own non-beliefs and uh in his way believes and if that isn't sort of the heart of some sense of transformation of soul of self of fate of destiny or something i don't know what is and i uh, i thought it was a, a a really like microcosm of 
honestly a lot in the show too of just the alchemy of everybody in the show throughout the seasons and of that constant struggle that you have with the things that you can't quite get your hands in into or believe and yet when you go beyond that or to the side of that or to the left of that that's kind of what keeps you moving forward is just whether it's belief in people or love or community which a lot of what is lodge 49 is about it has you ultimately in your non-believer ishness um be a believer and that seems to be a lot of the heart of uh, of the show overall so i love jocelyn this time that is such an amazing scene and we i i felt warm that we got to see them make up a little bit um yeah you know because you know everyone's magic is different it's not all one magic um I'll I'll jump in with mine. Mine was Avery more because he was it was almost like not this sort of slow moving alchemical change, but he was like the catalyst. You know, he was, you know, like his plot, you know, he he the the drone and showing, you know, and showing up at Captain's house and and even going back to to Jocelyn's story arc. And for now for a couple episodes, and this one it kind of crescendos here, obviously, you know, his his kind of random actions actually even going to season two, his random actions are not so random, but are, are sparking these movements in people all throughout the cast, like almost like coming, doing something really quick and then moving on to the next thing. So I just, uh, maybe not an alchemist, but he was my catalyst of the week. Um, and then of course, in that, in that scene, you know, his, he was, <laughs> he was the mover of chaos for sure. <laughs> I was uh, I was also gonna say Jocelyn, so I was gonna kind of piggyback on what Linda said. Um, yeah, um, I'll go at it from a different angle. Um, uh, going back to when Blaze said, "You're like a wizard of demystification," so it's like Jocelyn transforms gold into lead, but then like through talking with Blaze again and and saying like, you know, he doesn't really believe in it, but like the, he says that the mythology is beyond the point. Like it is about like community, like whether or not he believes in it, there is something real within it. And um, so it's cool that he turns gold into lead because when you turn, when you turn gold into lead, I think that kind of proves you can then turn lead back into gold. Like you, you prove that it's like not immutable, you know, or yeah, or transmutable or whatever. Um, and then, uh, you know, second place is Fernando the cat. No reasons. He's just cute. <laughs> I love that cat so much. I love so that cat cute. so much. Sometimes, sometimes on set there are uh, animal owners, animal trainers or whatever, who yeah. are very protective of the animals the and you really can't go near them and the handlers and everything. Um, but they weren't that way about that cat. And so I love that. Yeah, <laughs> There's a picture, I think I posted it on Instagram or something, in which he's sitting in my chair. Like they were so excited, but I loved him sitting in my chair anyway. <laughs> He was great. He was a great cat. Of course, he had was a Was he down to earth? Most cats did. Yes, he was very down to earth. He was very, he was very down, down to earth. earth. Signed yeah, all the autographs. You know? yeah, totally did. Totally did. He That's often great. had a mind of his own, as cats often do, or any animal on set often does. But but most of the time, really, he was pretty dang chill. And you just put him there, and he was pretty He was pretty cool. He had a great... I thought he had a really uh, very simpatico energy with, with Brent. Oh, yeah. which was right. which was appropriate yeah i mean i think Famous ever since cats. the godfather where brando just kind of is stroking that cat i've always thought that like 
you know, it's a good sign of a great actor when they can just pick up an animal and kind of start petting them and they don't like scurry off. I mean, especially a cat, yeah. you know, and like, yeah, he, yeah. And he also has a little with the bird as well. I mean, I know he's feeding him, but it's in one scene, he has two animals that he just is very natural with. Because I mean, in a way, I, I would imagine that you're, you know, you're thinking about what you're saying and you're, you know, when you're acting, you're on kind of, you know, levels inside and outside and all that kind of stuff. But the idea that the animal has its own life and isn't going to cut when they say cut and roll when they say roll. And the way that you can kind of like go with that, I think has always been a good sign to me of good acting. Yeah. And he's yeah. mm -hmm. Jim, take us home. Who was your alchemist of the week? My alchemist of the week was Janet. Uh, well, from a transformative point of view, she transformed into the uh, Omni Globe man into herself. But um, what I had in mind originally was, um, that she sets Liz off on some kind of path. It's of, in, of indeterminate nature. Um, by asking her that question, where do you see yourself in five years? It just really gets in, gets into her and gets at her and she can't let it go. Even after they meet out on the outer deck and uh, Janice says, don't think about it. That's just for them, you know? Um, it doesn't really mean anything, but it clearly has worked its way inside of Liz's brain and um, prompts her to, to jump off the boat. <laughs> um, and there's kind of an extra element of this alchemy, though, because Janet then in season two takes that story of what Liz does and turns it into her own and pretends <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's right. It's terrible. <laughs> but she's... Um, there's... That uh, their relationship is so fascinating over the two seasons, right? <laughs> and we kind of we the, the real introduction of their relationship is in that one scene, and she's almost like mini evil uh, Liz in a way. You know, they have a similar look. It's almost she's almost like this like kid kid sister doppelganger like evil version of her. And so they have, and that's as real as we see Janet in that little exchange. I think maybe they have a similar exchange in season two. Um, yeah. But I think about Liz jumping off. I I really think about Liz jumping off the boat at, at an unhealthy amount. And when I watched <laughs> it this time, um, I had a totally different read. Like other times, I thought, oh, she was scared, or she had this like mass rejection of that whole culture. I think those those things are not untrue. But she actually gets genuine affirmation that I think she actually likes and respects. But that affirmation says. I've gotten, I've now gotten everything I've needed from this journey and the mm -hmm. only path is off. It's not like a, this is horrible. Like, you know, what am I doing with my life? It's, I've gotten what I've needed. I know there can be more. I know there's more within me and we, everyone needs external validation and she gets very little of it, especially since the passing of her father. And we even yeah. have the establishment that, you know, went the scene in the donut shop about that, a little bit about that. Um, so I took it as like, oh, this time when I watched it, I was like, oh, she's gotten what she's needed. And the only logical path is next, not escape. Mm, yeah. So I don't mm. know. It was a, that's such a powerful scene, but I had a different read this time. Mm. All right. Well, that brings us to the end. But Linda, one deep appreciation and gratitude. We are, you know, we are amateur podcasters. Nobody knows who we are. And to have folks like you and everyone else to come on the show and support the show and say kind things just means an enormous amount to us. So thank you for giving up some time with your mom in Colorado to spend it with us on <laughs> Zoom. 
Um, and we'd love to hear where where can people see you next? What are you up to? I know the fans love to follow the the Lodge careers, both behind and in front of the camera. Um, there are a bunch of things coming up. Of course, who knows, uh, depending on when people listen to this, what will be going on. But uh, I, I was lucky enough during this really weird year, terrible, awful, horrible uh, aspects of it, for sure, um, year to be lucky enough to work safely. And, uh, uh, and I was able to finish a movie I did for Netflix starring Sandra Bullock. It still doesn't have a title, so. Um, but it's Sandra Bullock and Viola Davis, and um, that's coming out, I think, this fall, uh, and uh, fall of 2021. And um, I did a few, uh, I did a, a series in my apartment. I did four episodes of a series uh, that you guys probably, probably don't get to see unless you're around New York because uh, it's on Charter Spectrum. Um, sometimes these things that they develop for them, it's by the people who did Good Wife and Good Fight, and it's called The Bite. Oh. And uh, uh, sometimes these things end up on other streaming services, I understand, or just on other networks, in fact. So who knows, you might see it. But it was a pandemic-related, um, somewhat satirical zombie show, basically. But, uh, but they figured out a way to shoot 95% of it super safely and in people's homes. And it was an amazing thing just to do it. But I shot it at my home. It's called The Bite. And uh, I did... Uh, a few episodes of a little show called Succession on HBO. And I did a few episodes of uh, uh, what will not be a little show uh, called The Gilded Age um, on HBO also, which is sort of, uh, it's a Julian Fellows thing, the guy who did Downton Abbey. So it's kind of the American version of that set in the Gilded Age. And I did a few episodes of that. And then I finally finished uh uh, a film that I, I really loved working on. And I'm not quite sure where or how it's going to end up, um, but uh, with Jennifer Lawrence and uh, I play her mom and um, uh, we worked on it long and hard and it got broken up by many factors, not just the pandemic. So in fact, I just recently, after two years away from it, uh, finished it. And it was super trippy for Jen and I to be in the same backyard in New Orleans, um, you know, two years later, uh, uh, shooting a scene, playing these same people was was super weird. But so I'm I'm very excited to see how that comes out, or just to see it finally come together. Uh, and I have some little theater stuff coming up. I theater is very close to my heart. And um, the first project I'm going to do is actually something more in the digital virtual range because uh, they really found out, you know, during the pandemic that a, there was a lot of outreach trying to find a way to reach people theater wise. And they found that there were some really cool things that they were able to produce that have theater at its heart, but are in fact in a format um, like this even, um, but in a digital format uh, um, and um and so they're experimenting with it because they realize that the reach is great. They can get to a lot more people, for one thing, uh, by doing it this way. And so uh, I look forward to taking part of it. It's pretty collaborative, and it's something with Steppenwolf Theater in Chicago, which is a super cool company that I, I love a lot and have uh, some history with from years ago. And, um, and other than that, like so many people really in life, um, trying to get used to a, a world that we hope can continue to um, open up if we don't fuck it up <laughs> and uh, uh, that we can open up. And I feel that uh, so many of us have felt constricted and there's been so much constriction. And so this sense of opening and, uh, you know, even blossoming and uh, expanding expansiveness, 
I'm really excited to see where it leads me and uh, all of you and and everybody because it's been a super weird time, right? It's been super weird. But really, you guys are are awesome, uh, really. And uh, uh, to be able to say personally, because I know we do have we have great fans on the show, but um, uh, uh, it really it's it. Uh, um, I'll see. I'm getting emotional. I mean, it gets me emotional. We just really we love doing the show so much, and we really miss the show so much. And uh, it kind of feels like a crime, right? A crime against humanity, damn it. That it didn't get the life it was supposed to have. And so to live on with it, uh, with you guys uh, and many others, it just means a great deal. Thanks a lot. Wow. Thank you. For, thank you. Thank you. Taking us on the story that you did. We deeply appreciative. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Linda. And uh, we'll see you next week with, with our end of the journey, at least this journey with episode 10 rewatch. See you then. I don't believe in fame Trade any days left for prophecy Why can't you see my choice is true Cause I found